Pastor Rob's too much as always, so. If you open up your Bibles with me to John, John 1. John 1. You know, it's a simple question, but it has um, profound implications. And you can learn a lot about someone through their answer. The question is simple. It's just, where are you from? And admittedly, it's a loaded question for me. Now, if, if, if you're originally from California and you ask me, where are you from? I'm going to tell you about my proud Midwestern heritage. I'm going to tell you how about I grew up south of Chicago. went to high school in Minneapolis. I know what it's like to be cold, okay? But then I go home to the Midwest. They say, where are you from? I say, oh, Thousand of California. That's where I'm from, right by the beach, in between the beach and the mountains. And, and, and you start to see, as people start to ask, you know, where are you from? You kind of see where people hold some of their identity. A lot about them exists in this answer of, of where are you from? I saw actually a license plate this last week that said, it was a, it was a couple, clearly USC fans, okay? Their license plate said, to from USC. They're from USC. That's where they're from, Okay? If you're from you know, UCLA, just relax, calm down, all right? And we can learn a lot you know, about what, the way that people answer. Where are they from? The region, the state, the family, the heritage, the ethnicity. Where do they come from? And so as we embark on this, this study, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in chronological order, it doesn't make sense that we start where Jesus was born. It makes sense that we start where Jesus is from. Where is Jesus from? We're going to get a glimpse tonight in the Gospel of John. And now you need to know that each of the Gospels presents the origin of Jesus in a slightly different manner, and I don't want you to be confused. I've got a little chart here. In Matthew, we see that Jesus came from Abraham through David to show that he was the prophesied Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay? In Mark, which we just got done studying 15 months through Mark in the college ministry, college students showed up 15 months in a row to hear the Bible, which is amazing. It depicts him as Jesus coming from Nazareth to show us, to declare to us that he is the servant. Okay? In Luke, it's that he comes from Adam to show that Jesus is the perfect man. Okay, but these are the three synoptic gospels. Synoptic is just simply means together seen. Sin, optic, together seen. And the synoptic gospels speak into mainly what Jesus taught and did. John's gospel speaks mostly to who Jesus is. And it's different in that regard than the synoptic gospels. So it makes sense that we go to John to not necessarily take a look at the earthly ramifications of where he's from, but as we see, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What we want to do here is establish a deeper understanding, not where Jesus was born, not through the lineage that Jesus came, but from where Jesus came where Jesus came from. 
And John is a little different in this regard, though we're not going to study straight through John. The way that this is going to be structured is we will be bouncing around Scripture. We will be bouncing around the Gospels. All right, but this is about as systematic as you can do a topical study. This is about as systematic as you could possibly do a topical study. We are going to literally be going chronologically through the life and ministry, as it said. We kind of made it obvious in the title, right? You know, it's like, you're like, what's this whole thing about? Well, okay. The life and ministry of Jesus in chronological order, okay? But we want to talk necessarily where he was born or his lineage or the town from where he came. We want to talk about where Jesus is from. And so it begins, it says, in the beginning. This is clearly not the beginning of God. Don't make that mistake. This is clearly not the beginning of Jesus. It says, in the beginning, much like it says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. That assumes that he was already there. God sits over time. Not, I mean, the concept of time. Try to wrap your mind around that. That this is the concept of time and God sits over it. He can see the front of it. He can see the end of it. And we can read the end of it too. It's pretty amazing. Have you read Revelation? Right? All right? He can see the front. He can see the back. He can see under. He can see over time. So he sits over the concept of time. And it says, in the beginning, the word, essentially, it was there. He was there. In the beginning of time, the word, just like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In this concept of time, God did something. And so the word here is capitalized, all right? Smart crowd. It's been said that if you go to church on Sunday morning, you love the church. If you go to church on Wednesday night, you love the pastor. If you go to church on Sunday night, you love Jesus, right? This is probably a pretty smart crowd here, all right? But this is the capital W word. This is a label for Jesus. Now notice the incarnation hasn't happened yet. So he receives the name Jesus in the incarnation, but the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, has always been, always will be. We just recently did a study in the college ministry too. Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Now the name's not there, but the second person of the triune God is. And so it says, in the beginning, the Word. And this is connected later in verse 14. It says, and the Word became flesh. That's obviously who we're talking about is Jesus. And what is a word? Now we've got God's word here, correct? We've got God's word, and then we have the word. What is a word? What is the concept of a word? What is it? What is a word? We say them all the time. It's communication. Jesus is the perfect communication of God. So is the Bible. Amazing how that worked out. Right? So this is the perfect, untouched, unchanged, living, breathing, perfect communication of God. And so is Jesus. So we need to understand him first as the communication of the unseen God, as we're going to see. The image of the invisible. Jesus communicates to us. So it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The with here is very intimate in the original language. Very, very intimate. It's not just with. Like, we're with things all the time, right? This means face-to-face. This means that they have, in the Trinity, they have experienced continuous, perfect, outpouring, face-to-face intimacy. Jesus was with God. And then it says, 
something shocking. And the word was God. This is either the most shocking, amazing statement or the most damnable lie ever uttered in human history. That God, as we're going to see later, became man. And he's going to reiterate that. And so a lot of times what I like to do with the college ministry, I have a passion for, for maybe surface-level apologetics. And I recently had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door for the first time since I've been out here. I've been in California 12 years. So excited. I couldn't wait. Open the door. Yes. Hi. Right? <laughs> I wasn't a jerk. It was before Christmas. And they opened it up and they said, immediately, they just kicked it off. 14-year-old dressed in a suit with the guy behind him making sure nothing crazy happened. Opened it up, said, hi, the Christmas season tends to be about different things for different people. Which one do you identify with? Bullet one, is it in the remembrance of Jesus? I said, hold up. Who are we talking about? We're talking about, about Jesus. I said, do you believe Jesus is God? Well, no, he's, he's, he's an angel. I said, right away, we disagree on something. I said, well, where does he say he's God? Well, John 30, 10. says, I and the Father are one. We went through some things. The word was with God, and the word was God. The declaration being made here is unlike any other declaration made by a religious a world religious leader. Line them up. One of my favorite studies to do, and I've done it in the college ministry, I've done it in the high school ministry, I've done it in the junior high ministry, I've done it in Malibu, I've done it here, is the nine reasons we worship Jesus as God from his lips alone. You line up all the world religion leaders, stack them next to each other. You got Buddha, you got Confucius, you've got Krishna, you've got L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology. You've got Charles Taze Russell of Jehovah's Witnesses. You've got Joseph Smith. And you just go down the line. Are you God? No. Are you God? No. Are you God? No. Are you God? Nope. Never said I was. Are you God? Muhammad, are you God? No. I peeked into heaven once. Pipe down, Muhammad. Relax. Right? Are you God? Jesus, are you God? I'm God. That's a good place to start. That's, I, I was a Marine. We're not known for being bright. That's a great place to start. Well, I'm going to start asking that guy questions because clearly he's different from everyone else. The word was with God, face to face, and the word was God. This is a declaration of divinity. God is immediately communicating to us that something is happening. Something is about to happen. And it's going to be done through Jesus. And then this part. This is, this is one of my favorite things. This is why when Pastor Rob called me, I said, I'm, I was done with this study on Tuesday, pretty much. I finalized my notes today, I was done. One of the reasons why is because this is one of my favorite things in the Bible. And I'll see if I can do any justice as to why. So it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we've, we've covered the whole, he didn't, wasn't created. All things were made through him. Through him. So Jesus, as we've seen, has always been. That's the origin. The origin is that he's always been, that he's eternal. Not that he was born, not that he died, but he has always been. Not Nazareth, okay? And it says here that all things were made through him. Have you thought about that? So Jesus is not only communication of God, Jesus is the mode by which creation occurs. Jesus is a mode. 
Jesus is the mode of creation. Flip back to Genesis 1. In fact, I'll just do this real quick because I've already circled them all and underlined them and I can tear through it. In the beginning, God created. That's Jesus. See how he did that? And he's going to do this entire thing. It's the first sermon recorded ever. Humans hadn't even been created yet. God's giving a sermon right now. And he constructs the world through a sermon. Verse 3, then God said, that's Jesus. And things happened. Verse 6, then God said, that's Jesus. 9, then God said, that's Jesus. 11, then God said, then God said, then God said, then God said, then God said. Every time God said, the mode by which everything was created was Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's mind-blowing to me. And as it says in Colossians 1.16, everything was made through him and for him. Uh-oh. Now we can't compartmentalize. Shoot. I'd like to leave church at church. I'd like to have work be work. I'd like to have my sex life be my sex life. I'd like to have my marriage be my marriage. I'd like to have my Friday nights be my Friday nights. No one touch my Friday nights. Right? But suddenly everything we understand scripturally was created through Jesus and for Jesus. Art was created through Jesus for Jesus. Business was created through Jesus for Jesus. The church was created through Jesus for Jesus. Sex, art, music, entertainment created through Jesus for Jesus. Marriage, masculinity, femininity, do you want me to go on? Through Jesus, for Jesus. Everything created through Jesus. He's the mode by which all things were created. The mode by which all things that were actually created, not formed. See, we don't create anything. We simply assemble things that were created. That's the difference. We don't create. I'm an artist. I create. No, you don't create. You assemble, you form that which has been created. God creates raw material. God created the concept of time. Like, explain that. I can't. I don't know. Not smart enough. But I know that he did. The concept of time was created through Jesus, for Jesus. All things created through Jesus and for Jesus. So we see here the application is very simple. As I said, there's no compartmentalization when you understand that everything you enjoy was created through him and for him. Two New Year's Eves ago, the church blessed me and sent me up to a college conference. And the title was, Why Jesus Creates, dot, dot, dot. And every teaching was just on a different component of why Jesus creates. Why he creates art, culture, church, family, marriage, music, everything. And it starts to change your world. So you wake up like, oh, I got to go to my job. Jesus created work for his glory. Stop being mopey. Amen. So I don't like my job. Get a different one or just be better at the one you have. Because that was created through Jesus, for Jesus. Work was created in the Genesis account. Work was created as a gentleman. This is a part of our DNA. I just spoke on this at Newberry Park High School. Praise God, we have a church that goes into public schools and preaches. And I exhorted the men. I said, look, you need to understand that it's a part of our blessing and a part of our curse. Men, you're to work. It's built into your DNA. 
It is. It says that God had no one to work the ground, so he created man out of response for need to work. Now, that's part of our curse, to be sure, as well, to remind us that we're a sinner and point to Jesus. But everything, work, school, knowledge, intellect, time, art, music, everything created through Jesus, the communication of God for Jesus. See, when there was a whole bunch of creation happening, it was Jesus doing the creating. He wasn't created, he was creating. Genesis 1 is all about Jesus. That is the mode by which all things came into existence. That's mind-blowing. That's part of where Jesus is from. He's the mode by which everything came together. Not only that, as it says, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. As it says again in Colossians 1, all things are held together by him. In him was life. Everyone take a deep breath. No one died, thank Jesus. He literally just sustained that breath as part of his common grace. He literally, see contrary to what science tells you, it's not your heart, it's not your brain, it's not your lungs that keeps you alive. Jesus is a sustainer. He is the source, sum, and sustaining power between before everything, in front of everything. We know how delicately the universe hangs in balance. Pastor Rob shows us that virtually every Sunday, and I love it. Five degrees closer, we, what? We burn to death to the sun. Five degrees away, what? We freeze to death. Some of you guys are like, it's 40 degrees, we're already freezing. Okay, relax. You should see Minnesota right now, okay? He, Jesus, is the mode by which all things are currently being held together by God's common grace. So Jesus is not only the perfect communication of God and the mode by which all things were created, he then sustains it. Kind of nice of him to sustain that which he has created, right? He creates us for his glory. It would make sense that he then sustains us. Death is nothing but a threat of heaven. Jesus is sustaining us. Pastor Rob says he's immortal till God's done with him. Jesus will sustain you until he sees fit. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy when it happens. But Jesus is the communication of God. Jesus is the mode by which all things were created. Jesus is the sustainer by which all things are then held together. This is what's going on in in the, quote, origin of Jesus. Before man has even been created, this is what Jesus is doing. This is how Jesus is serving us. As communication, as mode, as creator, as sustainer, as source and sum, Jesus creates, Jesus sustains. So it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it so what we see here is that again jesus is the word the eternal second person of a triune god communicating to us god's image communicating to us god's will god's perfection god's nature but a declaration doesn't have much effect if it doesn't have a witness Scream in the forest all you want. A declaration by nature assumes that there's a witness, that there's a hearer. 
And so Jesus, again, as communication, as mode, as sustainer in his origin, it says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. We know light's Jesus. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. There it is again. And the world did not know him. Man does what we do best, we rebel. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. We're born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The world did not know him. This is devastating. God communicates to us, he creates us, he sustains us, and our rebellion is still rampant. Our rebellion against him, that which sustains us, is still rampant. There's hope for those who believe. And so God, in eternal word, communicates to us his witnesses. His witnesses. Do we take being God's witnesses seriously enough? We know that not all are going to believe. We know that. But the impetus is still on us to be witnesses. Rebellion is rampant. This is the depravity of man on full display. In full rebellion. This is creation not recognizing its creator. Can you imagine how frustrating that is? I'm just starting to get it with kids. Right? I got a nine-month-old and a three-year-old. Three-year-old honestly thinks that he's the reason that all things are held together. Right? He doesn't understand his creator. He doesn't understand the delicate balance in which he sits currently, which is between the walls of the home, which I paid for. Right? And that's what the text is talking about here, that the world did not know him, that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. See, we do have a responsibility in all of this. Our responsibility as witnesses is to receive Jesus and to proclaim his truth. And to be born again. Oh, politically incorrect term. I've seen that. I, I literally had a conversation with a, with a cohort of mine a couple companies ago that I worked at. She said, we were talking about just, just dating. She was a Catholic, far left, bisexual. Okay, just, she said, well, I, I could date a Christian, I think, but not one of those born again people. Right? Unfortunately, the term is used and abused, but it's biblical. It's absolutely biblical. We're not talking about a rebirth, a physical rebirth. Okay, we're talking about a washing of the Holy Spirit, being renewed by the grace of God, and now guess what you are? You're a witness. You're a witness. 
You're now responsible for the truth that you've been handed. What are we doing with that? What am I doing with that? You see, we can't compartmentalize anymore. We just established that. Well, hold on, hold on. You're not talking about, hold on, work is work. Relax, right? No, not really. Work is ministry. Your family is ministry. Your marriage is ministry. Your time watching TV is ministry. Not really, right? Eh. See, I can get all self-righteous. We just cut our cable. So now I'm like, ah, I'm one of those guys now, right? I had cable up until like two weeks ago. And now I'm just going to bag on everyone that has cable, right? We still have Apple TV. Don't worry about it. So... <laughs> But now we're witnesses. And one of the things that John does differently is that he's going to call forth in this book, he's going to call forth a bunch of witnesses. And that's what he's doing for this first, in this first chapter, he calls four witnesses right away. The gospel is different. Because again, he's talking about who God is. So he brings up seven miracles attributed to Jesus, six of which are not even described in the synoptic gospels. He declaratively goes through the I am statements. Again, this is John. This is John talking about who Jesus is. If we're going to understand the origin of Jesus, we need to understand these foundational truths. This is how God intended us to begin to lay a foundation spiritually for our faith in Jesus. That's why this study doesn't start in Bethlehem. It starts with who Jesus is. How he served us before we were even created. How he sustains us. How he communicates God perfectly to us. And so it's our responsibility simply to receive Jesus and to proclaim his truth and, and the work that he's done in you. See, this is nothing of us. And a lot of people, this is where you get, you know, the Calvinists get all, you know, kind of irky and the Arminians like, yeah, for responsibility, right? We're just right in the middle with the Bible, okay? Right in the middle, Are we elected? Are we predestined? Yes. Do we need to receive Jesus? Yes. Is that a work? No. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It is by grace, through faith you have been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. As he says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's by grace. And the word in verse 14, and the word became flesh. Again, this is a shocking statement to both the Greeks, to both the Jews. The Greeks had a prohibitive view of God. The Jews had a low view of God. And what he's doing is saying that both your views don't make sense in light of the truth that, yes, God did humble himself. Yes, God did become flesh. The Logos did become flesh that the Greeks understood to be the source of all intellect, okay? And that the Jews understood to be a reference to God. He knew exactly, the author knew exactly who he was writing to. He says, yes, the word, the eternal second person of Jesus communicates, creates, sustains, and then became Flesh in the incarnation. Explain the incarnation. Can't really. I can't. All I can tell you is that God, perfect, holy, unchanging, added humanity to himself. Added humanity to himself. In this very moment, God added humanity. God did not become a man fully. He retained all his divine properties. He added human nature to his Nature. 
Tough to understand? Yeah, it is. And in that, there's a doctrine known as communicatio idiomatum, which simply means that the properties between the two did not communicate. So in the incarnation, when these two natures met, neither were violated, neither lost any part of themselves. So in the incarnation, God adds humanity to himself. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just like walk through walls? Now, don't get me wrong. He performed miracles in his divinity. But in the human flesh, 100% man, he couldn't walk through a wall. You can't say, Jesus could do anything, right? In the incarnation, if Jesus walked through a wall, you could not say that he was 100% man. That that property of God did not transfer to his humanity. They're like, oh, are you saying Jesus was bound? A little bit. Why did he say when he ascended into heaven that it's better that I go so that he could send what? The Holy Spirit, who went global. Twitter account, Instagram, everything. He went ballistic. Jesus' ministry, this is not to lower it in any regard, was pretty much restricted to the the region of Galilee because he was a man. He couldn't just pop up some other country. You couldn't say he was a man. Now he performed miracles to be sure in his divinity, to be sure. You see how that works? So this statement is grand, it's crazy, it's shocking, it's, again, either the most amazing thing that's ever happened or the most damnable lie. To say that God became flesh, that God added humanity to himself. That's exactly what it's saying. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Beheld is far more than just see or hear or listen. It's intently study. If this is a room full of witnesses, are we willing to say, are we willing to bet the mortgage that we have been intently studying the communication, the mode of creation, the sustainer of all things, Jesus Christ? That's what this study is intended to do, is to intently, intently study. It says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his faithfulness, we have received and grace for grace. Some of your translations may say grace upon grace. This is the two-fold, the two layers of God's grace. Did you know there were two? Or have you done what I've done most of my life and just had a very shallow view of grace? We just last night concluded a study of the five soleil, the five theological thrust point arguments in response to the Catholic Church, we'll say delicately. One of those is grace alone. And in that, we studied the twofold understanding of God's grace. Keep in mind, it is by grace through faith. So by grace through faith. When you have faith in Jesus, God then layers his grace upon you. But that's only one of the layers. There's two layers The first one is common grace. This is experienced by everyone. This is what he's speaking of right here. Grace for grace. Grace upon grace. Why twice? Is he being redundant? No. Common grace is experienced by everyone, regardless of your response. Everyone take a breath again. 
Feel that? That's common grace. How would I define common grace? Bluntly, concisely, anything this side of hell. Anything this side of, well, the world's messed up. It's not worse than hell. Anything this side of hell experienced by all. You see it in scripture. We won't go through the study. You can see that God pours out common grace on everyone. Grace upon grace. It has no bearing in eternal life. Don't get me wrong. It's like, well, can I just apply that faith, that grace, and then just kind of skirt through and not have to deal with Jesus? No. Everyone's going to deal with Jesus. Everyone will. You know who holds the keys to hell? Jesus. Satan's not down there having a party. He's not excited to be in hell. He doesn't rule hell. Jesus rules hell. Jesus rules. He has his foot on the throat of Satan. So you can't just say, well, I'm just going to party. I'm going to have a good one. I might as well have a party in heaven and be with those stuck-up snobs, or party in hell and those stuck-up snobs in heaven. I don't want to deal with Jesus. You're going to deal with Jesus. All religions lead to God. That's heresy. No, all religions lead to God. Only faith in Christ leads to heaven. That's the difference. Everyone will see God. Everyone will see God. Everyone will see Jesus. So we've got these two, this twofold understanding of grace. So God has common grace that he pours out on everyone. This is medical advancement. This is technology. This is art and music and creation and hiking and surfing. This is ways in which we can experience God's common grace. The universe is held together by common grace. We have established authorities. We have governments. I know it's tough to think of government as common grace, but it is. People are like, oh, the world's chaotic. Stop it. It's really not. I've been to the front lines in war. I've been to Fallujah. There's still even order in war. All right? People still have to go to sleep. The sun still comes up and goes down. It still gets hot and cold. There is order amid chaos. All right? We're not just a bunch of victims being heaped on the, the world. Just relax. There is common grace abundant so that people may know who God is. But then there's saving grace. And in our study, we went through at least 12 dimensions. That's as many as I could find. There's probably 486 or something like that, right? We did like 12 dimensions of God's saving grace. And what you see is that God's grace is a thrust behind every step in the Christian life. Every step is propelled by grace. We have elected grace that we've been elected. If you follow Jesus, congrats, you've been elected. Well, how did that happen and where exactly? Don't know, don't really care, right? If you're in Jesus, you've been elected. You've experienced electing grace. There's preached grace where God, as he's doing, preaches to the world, to witnesses. That's right here, right now, just as much as it was then. There's preached grace. There is regenerating grace. There is converting grace. There is empowering grace. There is grace at every step of the way. So God takes your faith and he layers grace upon grace, common grace for all and the saving grace for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what is being spoken of here when he says, and the fullness we have all received and grace for grace, grace upon grace for the law was For the law was given through Moses, but the grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And he's just simply contrasting the rigid religiosity of legalism and religion with the grace and truth of the gospel of Jesus. 
So before anything happened, Jesus was communicating. Jesus was creating. Jesus was sustaining. And now that message goes out to us as his witnesses. Some will believe, some will not. And then he pours out his grace on us so that every step of the way we can push his glory to the forefront. Not our own. His glory to the end. It says this, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. And there we see it again. Jesus' origin is a declaration to us. Jesus is the perfect communication. I want us to remember this. I want you to bring that to every Sunday night you attend. That as we go chronologically through the ministry and life of Jesus, at every step of the way, when he's angry and when he's really nice, when he's yelling at people to repent and when he's bringing children unto him, he is communicating perfectly the nature of God. Do not do what the world does and simply discard that about Jesus which you don't like. Took a bunch of demons and put them into a pig's and shoved them off a cliff. I'm a vegetarian, right? Like that sort of thing. Perfectly, right? You're like, where do you come up with that, right? Spits on a blind man. Curses a tree, okay? Sociologists would be like, the guy's a nut. At every step of the way, Jesus' life as the word incarnate, receiving the name Jesus, is communicating perfectly the nature of God. That's why we call him the word. That's why we call the Bible God's word, because it is the perfect communication. And he says, no one has seen God. See, we live in a modern scientific era that has a lot of, Knowledge, but so little wisdom. A lot of knowledge, so little wisdom. I'm really smart, don't really care. Are you wise? Can you apply the knowledge which God has given you? That's what I want to know. So no one has seen God. And what the modern culture wants to do is demand evidence. And what they don't even understand is that if you step back from that debate, let's just talk philosophical logic, can we? When you say, I want to see evidence of God, don't get me wrong, there is order to be seen throughout throughout the creation, right? Common grace. But can you prove God exists? Can you provide evidence of his existence? No, no one has ever seen God. Right? When Isaiah looked into heaven, saw God's glory, Jesus affirms in the New Testament, what? He saw me. There Jesus was in the Old Testament. No one has ever seen God the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible. But we live in this modern culture that says, well, I want evidence. Back it up, especially you young people. You're hearing this all the time. You're hearing it from professors. You're hearing it from friends. You're hearing it from everyone. Take a step back. Before we get to the science, can we just talk logic? What you've done is you've committed a category error. It's like saying... I have a rock that is alive. I have a a rock that is alive. I have a rock that is alive. 
That's a category error. You're talking about an inanimate object and life. Those are two different categories that you cannot mix logically. So when you're talking about, I want non-transcendent evidence of a transcendent God, you're committing a category error. I want physical evidence of a spiritual God. You're committing a category error. God created the entirety of the physical universe is like this, and he sits outside of it looking at it. And you think they're going to use scientific methods which can only test the physical nature. No one ever said God the Father was part of physical creation except panentheists and pantheists. He's not. Don't be afraid when it says no one has seen God. Talk about God the Father. So Jesus comes in as the communication source, the sustaining force to show that nature of God who is the invisible God. So again, don't, don't get miffed, don't get torn down by this misunderstanding that we can ask for physical evidence of a non-physical God, that we can ask for transcendent, a transcendent God to have evidence in a non-transcendent manner. Does that make sense? We can't, you cannot do it logically. It says, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Jesus is all about communicating God. We talked about this last night too. Some people get confused and the Jehovah's Witnesses that came to my door did as well. Said if Jesus is God, why did he pray to God? What Jesus is doing is modeling for us perfectly how we are to live. If Jesus comes to earth in the incarnation and does not pray to God, there would be no reason for us to do the same. Jesus comes and he perfectly communicates in his anger, in his righteous anger, in his kindness, in his love, in his wrath. Have you read Revelation? Okay. With the children, with the Pharisees. Jesus communicates. Jesus' origin is as the perfect communication, the perfect creating force, the perfect sustaining force of everything we know. We have to lay that foundational truth if we're to understand anything that he did in his life or his ministry. Jesus is God. He declares to be God. We will get to that. He's been eternally communicating the nature of God, creating everything we know and sustaining us. As witnesses, we are here to receive him, to declare his glory to the world. That's it. And it's not of us, lest any man should boast, but a gift from God. That's where Jesus came from. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you for this time. I ask that you take the imperfection of a sermon and make it perfect on the hearts of everyone here. I thank you that your word is perfect, that you enable us by your grace to rightly divide it, though we don't divide it perfectly, though when you are present, the truths ring clear. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sacrificing that face-to-face intimacy that you had with your son, Jesus, in sending him on a cosmic rescue mission to save us from our rebellion. Father, I pray that this 
time was precious in your sight, that this was honoring to you. We thank you for those that are assembled. We thank you for this study. I pray that you bless Sunday nights moving forward. Bless everyone here, and I pray that you would just, again, score our hearts, sink this message by your grace into our hearts that you have always been. You are exactly what we need to know about God. You created us, and you sustain us, and for that, we are eternally in your debt. In your son's holy name, amen.